Good morning, Harvest. Why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, starting in verse 18. Uh, if you grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible on you this morning, there are ushers who are coming up the aisles right now who would love to get a Bible into your hands. So if you forgot your Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, for sure throw your hand up, grab one of these, take it home as our gift to you, and go to Romans, Romans chapter 1. So we're going to be this morning, and as, as you're turning to Romans chapter 1, you know, as a pastor, I meet a lot of people who, who expect that I've got everything figured out, that, that my life, obviously, I'm a pastor, my life is pretty perfect, and, and one of the reasons I love pastoring in a church, in a town where I've lived for a long time, that there are people here, I mean, you've known me for, for 20 years, and, and so, so you would know that that, that that is actually not true, that, that I am not a perfect pastor, and Yet some people would expect as a pastor, like I'd wake up in the morning and be like, good morning, Lord, and I'd grab a guitar and I'd write a couple of psalms, then I'd read through the, you know, two or three chapters of God's Word, I'd walk out into the, into the kitchen and my wife Libby would have cinnamon rolls all hot and steamy ready for me to eat, my kids would be gathered around praying and reading their Bibles, and listen, you've been to my house, if you have been to my house, you know that's for sure not true. Listen, as, as a... As a Christian, I've, I've gone through seasons where I've struggled with my faith. You know, when I was growing up, it's, it's as I looked at the church and I saw hypocrisy in the church and it, and it threw me as a, as, a, as a teenager, as a college-age student. But, but I've also, listen, I've, I've struggled with certain doctrines where I read through Scripture and, and I've said this before, if you're reading God's Word and, and there's nothing in there that confronts you, that, that makes you think, man, I don't know, i got to wrestle this thing down, you might not be reading God's Word right. There are parts of Scripture that are difficult and there are doctrines that can be hard and one of them we're going to unpack this morning. And that's this. It's, it's this idea of the wrath of God. You know, I, I love hearing about God's grace, about God's mercy. I love hearing about his, his infinite power, his infinite love. But there are so many verses in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the character and the attributes of God where, where it talks about it so clear in God's word that God is also a God of wrath. And for a lot of people, this is an issue that causes an obstacle for their faith. And some of us try to wrestle that down and say, well, you know, maybe that was just more of the, the wrath stuff, was more Old Testament kind of stuff. God, God was so much angrier back then, but he's gotten way kinder now. In fact, Jesus, Jesus is so much nicer. But it was the famous atheist Bertrand Russell in his paper entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. He said the main reason he didn't believe in Jesus was because Jesus, quote, so clearly believed in the wrath of God. If you want to be faithful to God's word, you have to come face to face with the wrath of God. And yet, sadly, it's, it's so many churches today, it's not talked about a lot. It's not talked about from, from the pulpits of so many churches in, in North America, especially. Yes, yes, it's a difficult doctrine for us to wrestle with, but listen, listen, it is a good doctrine. It's, it's one that's absolutely essential for us to, to know, to love, and to worship God. Because listen, a God without wrath is a God without goodness. If we want to see the amazing, know the amazing beauty of the gospel, we have to understand the ugliness of our sin. And so I, I hope as we unpack this section in Romans, it helps us this morning to love the good news of the gospel even more. In fact, let me show you. Look, look at Romans chapter 1, 
Starting in verse 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Listen, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the first point I want want us to see this morning from this text. Listen, number one, God's wrath is real. God's wrath is real. It's it's so clear from this text. I mean, it starts right away in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. We see his wrath clearly. And and not just a one-time thing, but it says it's been revealed. It's not like, oh yeah, we saw it revealed in the past, or, or we might see it revealed in the future. But no, it's this ongoing. The word revealed there in the original text is in the present tense, meaning that it's an ongoing revealing of God's wrath. The Bible speaks of God's wrath more than 600 times. Psalm Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. In fact, God's wrath is one of Jesus' most frequent themes in the Gospels. He he says in in John 3.36, whoever rejects the Son will not see life because why? Because God's wrath remains on him. And Jesus just didn't talk about it. He also demonstrated it. Remember towards the end of his life, he goes into the temple and he chases out a bunch of people in the temple that were ripping people off. They were using the temple as a way to gain financial advantage. They were using the temple to get rich. And Jesus, his wrath revealed, he didn't just go in there and see it and get mad. No, he saw it, went outside, made himself a whip. Like talk about an anger that was building up. And he goes in there he, he, with this whip and he chases them all out. Listen, I grew up in church. And how many here grew up with, with flannel graph, right? I, I remember flannel graph. And you had, you had right, the flannel graph Jesus. You had the flannel graph Jesus of, of Jesus holding a lamb or, or with kids around him or with a, the sweet flow and the, the beauty queen sash, right? Remember, that's kind of the Jesus, right? But I never remember flannel graph Jesus with the whip and the rah, right? I don't remember that. Yet there he was. Jesus' testimony to the wrath of God was central to his message and ministry. In fact, listen, he didn't think about it. He, he, didn't, he, he wasn't crucified by people because of his talk of God's love. It was his insistence on God's anger towards hypocrisy and injustice. His, 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 God's wrath is revealed in his word. God's wrath is revealed in the testimony and life of Jesus. How do we see it in this text here revealed? It says it, verse 18, his, his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What's this ungodliness and unrighteousness look like? It says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's saying we suppress the truth. What truth are we suppressing? The truth that's so clearly seen. Because what can be known about God, verse 19 says, is plain. God's shown it. When you look around in creation, we see who God is. He's revealed himself. In theological terms, they call this God's general revelation. 
God's word, his scripture, that's his special revelation. When, when God speaks clearly in that way, but he's also spoken, there's a knowledge of who God is, about his character, and it comes to us as we look around at his creation. When we look at the created world, when, when we look at history, when we look at our own heart and conscience as God presses in on us and we realize God is real. And in all of that, what does humankind do? Humankind suppresses that truth. That, that word suppress there, it means pushing something down, something that's trying to come up and you use your, your, your might to hold it down. So it's not just, oh, I ignored God. It's not, oh, I just didn't see clearly. No, God's word is saying here that we intentionally push God away. We see the truth of who he is and we push him back as best we can. We, we feel the presence of God's spirit on our conscience and we push him away. Verse 21 says, although they knew God. So we know something about God. We did not honor him or give thanks to him. We've pushed him away. And because of that, it says we become futile in our thinkings. Our hearts are darkened and we claim to be wise. But what do we do? We become these fools. Typically, when you think of God's wrath, we think of it like fire coming down, right? This active wrath of God. Fire comes down on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire, where God sees Pharaoh shaking his fist at him, and so he, he, he brings plagues on him. Or, or we think of the flood, or, or you think in Revelation of God's wrath poured out on the last day. But here, when Paul's talking about the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1, he's saying it's not revealed with lightning, it's not revealed with plagues, but listen, it's just as horrible, if not worse. It's this wrath of abandonment. Because you suppress the truth, you become fools. You start to worship other things. Look at verse 24. You see the wrath revealed here. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. God's wrath shown in, in letting us experience the consequences of these choices that we make. It's what theologians call God's passive wrath. Where God says, listen, you don't want me? Fine, fine, I'll let you go. Do whatever you want. I'm done with you. You want your sin? You, you want whatever feels good? Okay, go. I've been trying to hold you back, God says. I've been trying to bring myself to you, but you keep pursuing this. You keep wanting this. So God says, listen, I'm going to give you what you want, a life without me. God's judgment, his wrath, it's, it's just simply allowing us to experience the painful consequences of our choices. Now, when you see God's active wrath, the, the lightning bolt kind of stuff, it's, it's just an extension of his passive wrath. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Let me explain it this way. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and God cast them out of his presence, but hadn't Adam and Eve already chosen to hide themselves from God's presence? They sin, and what do they do? They hide in the garden. God comes by. They try to hide themselves. I don't want to be near God. I want to push him away. I don't want him near me. And they're already experiencing the, the passive wrath of God, and then God banishes them from the garden. In fact, hell is just simply God giving us what we've been asking for. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out your past sins and at all costs? To give you a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He says, but he's already done that on Calvary. Or maybe it's to leave you alone. 
He says, alas, I'm afraid that is precisely what God does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. It means God's mercy is is seen in his wrath where he's saying, listen, I want you to taste some of the painful consequences of your sin because I want to wake you up to who I am. I want to wake you up from the sin. God's wrath is real. Here's the second part. God's wrath is good. God's wrath is good. You see, he's letting us experience the consequences of our sin. I would say it this way. When, when somebody's sin is revealed, when a sin you've been hiding has been exposed, and we see that as God's wrath against us, really it's God's mercy saying, I'm exposing this so it doesn't keep going, so it doesn't take you to, to ultimate destruction. When your heart is not right, when you're living in sin, the absolute worst thing that God could do for you is to completely leave you alone and give you what you want. Maybe even this morning you, you could say that you, you would feel where God's pressing in on sin in your life. I mean, where even right now is, is God waking you up to the destructive consequences of your choices? Where he's saying to you even now, if you follow this right through to the end, do you really want to, to experience the fullness of this sin? Where sin will take you further than you want to go. It will, it will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will pay you, cost you more than you want to pay. It's in these verses that we're, we're confronted with the reality of our sin. And we've, we've got to see this because, because I think we're okay with God's wrath and his justice when we think of other people. When we think of, especially of people who have done incredibly horrible things. When, when you think of the Holocaust. When you think of crimes done to, done to kids. In those moments, we cry out for God's justice. We embrace God's wrath. And this is important because when we see God's wrath in that way, we have to realize that God's wrath is this demonstration of his judgment. That his wrath doesn't just come out of nowhere. We've been talking about all these attributes of God. We keep coming back to this, that we, we can't put the way we see how we live out these attributes and say, oh, that's how God does it. God is not like us. So our anger is not like his anger. God doesn't just explode in anger. That's not God's wrath. His wrath, listen, is an expression of his divine justice, which is so good when you think about it. We all have this longing for justice, don't we? When you see a gunman just come in and shoot down a group of people, when, when you see a terrorist take a vehicle, a truck, and ram it through a crowd of men and women and kids, don't we cry out for justice? We long for justice to be served. It was a few years ago that, that I had the privilege of going to Israel, and, and I got to walk through the, the Holocaust Museum there. It takes a couple hours of walking through and you see the, the horrible atrocities done. And, and by the time you leave, I mean, you're broken, you're, you're weeping, you're crying. But also, you have this, I had this deep longing for justice. This pain over the sin. And, and we see the impact of sin all around us. We, we see it in history. We see it in the news. We, we see it in our friends, and our family's lives. People who have been sinned against. And there's so much hurt from that sin, and there's something in us that cries out for justice. And, and we don't want evil and sin to have the last word. We don't want injustice to have the last word. We want God's goodness and his justice to have the last word. 
God's word is so clear that God, God's not going to just look the other way at, at sin and injustice, but he will have the last word. For God to be righteous, he has to have wrath against sin. So his wrath is a good thing. It's a good thing. Listen, it's also a terrifying thing. When you realize who we are, God's wrath is real. God's wrath is good. Here's our third point. God's wrath is towards all sin. When it comes to our own lives, our own sin, all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I actually don't like God's wrath anymore. I'm okay with you pouring out your wrath, God, on Pharaoh. I mean, he opposed you right to your face. But, but listen, this is when, when we start to see the reality of, of our own hearts and my heart included, that, that I am just like Pharaoh. Every single one of us has opposed God to his face as we press down, as we suppress the truth of God and his righteousness. A couple chapters later, Romans 3, verse 23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have. You see it here in our text this morning in verse 23. You see it worked out. We exchange, it says, the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. We're pushing away God, and as we push him away, it leads us to, to make our own gods up. Now, I love in Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah kind of mocks this idea of us creating our own gods. And he, he says, we cut down a tree, we use half of the tree to make a, use it to make our bread. The other half we go, oh, you've created me, you've made me, I worship you. I mean, it's so foolish, isn't it? And yet don't we do it ourselves? Where we, we worship ourselves? We, we put our hope in, which is just worship. We put our hope in so many horizontal idols. We, we turn to the gods of money or possessions or pleasure or sex or pornography or success or control. We, we worship the opinions of other people. And what are we doing in that moment? We are pushing away, denying the glory of God denouncing the sovereignty of God. We're looking into the face of God who's, who's sovereign over all. And just like Pharaoh, we say, I don't want your rule. I don't want your reign in my life. I mean, think about it. This same God, the creator God who calls storms and they come. The God who says to the wind and the rain, hey, you blow over here, you fall here, and, and creation does it. All creation obeys God until you come to you and me. And we actually have the nerve to look into the face of God and say, no. God, I, I know better than you. I, I know what's best for my life. And every time we choose idols, we choose sin over God, we, we denounce his sovereignty. We denounce his glory and his goodness. In this way, we actually show we don't believe that God's a God of wrath. We don't fear God. We fear failure, we fear ridicule, we, we fear embarrassment, we, we fear the unknown, we, we fear sickness, we fear dying and death. Could the reason be that we fear so many other things? Could it, could it be because we actually don't fear God? I'd say one of the greatest needs in the church today is an increased fear of God. Listen, listen, we're caught fearing so many other things because we don't fear sinning against God. We treat sin so lightly, and then, then we're shocked when we read in Scripture, so offended when we see how serious God treats sin. 
You read all through the Old Testament. You, you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, completely wiped out because of sin. And then Lot, God says, hey, as you leave, Lot, don't look back. Lot's wife turns around, looks back, and what happens? Annihilated, turned into a pillar of salt. In, Le- in Leviticus, a-, a couple of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they're these priests, and, and God commands the priests, I want you to-, to have worship look like this and make worship this way. And they say, no, we're going to do it our own way. They come up with their own way of worship, and they come before the Lord, and they are wiped out. Numbers 15, you, you read about a guy, he's gathering firewood on the Sabbath, and, and God was explicit about this, don't do this, do, do not gather firewood on the Sabbath, it's a day to worship me, and, and Moses catches this guy doing, he goes before God, hey God, this guy was just picking up a few sticks on the Sabbath, what, what should we do? In Numbers 15, God says, the man must die. I mean, I could go on and on, and, and we start to think, well, maybe that's just an Old Testament thing, right? God gets nicer in the New Testament, and then you come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, and, and Ananias and Sapphira, right? This guy, Ananias, they sell those, this land, and they want to give the money to the church. They didn't have to do that. They didn't have to, do, to, to sell the land and to give it to the church, but they wanted to. But here's what they did. They wanted to be known as the, the generous people in the church. They wanted everybody to know. And so, so he came for the church and said, I'm giving the entire proceeds of this land. But the, here's the thing. He really wasn't. He was holding back a bunch for himself and just giving some of it, but he was lying to look good. And so, so he's asked by Peter, hey, hey, is this everything? Are you really giving the whole proceed? He goes, yes, I am. And in that moment, he's dead. His wife comes in later. I don't know, maybe they had two services. She was serving in Harvest Kids in the first service, and she's coming down to the second service now. And, right, and she comes in, and, and Peter says to her, hey, this money you gave, is it all the money? And she says, yes, it is. Dead. Could you imagine that happening in our church today? The offering plate goes by and just dead, 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 dead. I mean, that is not a great way to grow a church, right? I mean, what's the deal? I mean, talk about severe. But listen, the wrath of God seems over the top because we see sin from our perspective. I mean, obviously, if, if you lie to somebody else here, you don't deserve death. But the point of Scripture that talks about God's wrath against sin, it's not about the size of the sin, but it's about who's been sinned against. There's one preacher who says it this way. He says, if you sin against a rock, it's not a big deal. When you sin against a person, it becomes a much bigger deal. And you sin against a God, an infinite, holy God, you are infinitely guilty. Because he's infinitely worthy of every ounce of your worship. And so one sin, no matter how small against an infinite God, is infinitely offensive in his sight and deserves infinite punishment. No matter what the sin is, the very heart of sin is you and I looking into the face of our creator and saying, you're not good. Your law is not good. You do not rule over my life. I defy your sovereign authority. I'm going to do whatever I want. I know what's better for me than you do. And we suppress the truth. We suppress righteousness. We try to suppress God. And as sinners against an infinitely holy God, we deserve infinitely holy wrath. Every single one of us will one day stand guilty of sin in front of God. And on that last day as we stand before him, every one of us deserving his just judgment, his eternal wrath, which leads me to the question, right? Like, what do we do? 
What do I do if, if this is how I stand before a holy God? What do I do? And here's the answer. There's nothing you can do. God revealing his wrath and showing us the brokenness of our hearts and our rebellious hearts. And he's saying, listen, you're lost on your own. Look at the verses leading up to verse 18, verses 16 and 17. Look what it says there. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So for everybody, he says this, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. In verse 17, the righteousness of God is also being revealed. And what's it saying? God is warning us with his wrath. He's wooing us with his mercy. And his mercy, he's saying, you can't do this on your own. And then in all the problems of illness and suffering and death and sin and all of that, all expressions of God's wrath, he's saying, you can't do this on your own. He's, he's speaking in his mercy. He's speaking in his wrath. He's saying, you're lost on your own. You need to be rescued. You need a rescue. Our last point this morning is just that. It's this. God provides a way for us to be saved from his wrath. God provides a way for us to be saved from his wrath. You know, all kinds of people today all around the world looking for different ways. How do I appease God? How do I, how do I appease his wrath? And so maybe if I go to church, if I do these religious activities, if, if I be a good person, but none of these things can eliminate the stain of sin and guilt on our hearts before a holy God. And people would say, well, why can't God just be, just be who? I thought he's a loving God. Why, why can't he just forgive my sins? And, and it's here where, where forgiveness actually creates a problem for God. If, if God simply just forgives and acquits every sinner, then is he really a just judge? I mean, think about it. If, if in one of our courtrooms today, there was a judge sitting on the bench in that courtroom, and everyone who came in who broke the law, he said, don't worry about it. You're free to go. It doesn't matter. You're free. We would want that judge removed. We're like, you're not a just judge. We would cry out for justice. And, and so with God, if God is just and we are guilty, the question is, how is it possible for God to set us free? Justice needs to be paid. And, and, and we see from the text that, that you and I can't, can't pay that. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Y'all ready for some good news? Right? Romans chapter 3, look at verse 23, just a couple pages over. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You see that he says there's a gift that's been given. It's through grace it's been given. This is all from God, this gift given, and it's given through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That, that, that word redemption, it means we've been bought back. Like in the Old Testament, when, when somebody had a debt they couldn't pay, they didn't have bankruptcy laws. So what they would do is if you couldn't pay the debt, you had to go into slavery to the person you owed the debt to, and you would work and work until the debt has been paid off. We become slaves to sin. We have a debt that's so beyond our ability to pay. We can't pay it back. Slaves to the sin, and then Jesus steps in as our redeemer and says, I'll pay. I'll buy you back. 
What does he pay? Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages, the payment for sin is death. And that's what you see as you read on in these verses. Verse 25, God put him forward as a propitiation. Propitiation means that, that Jesus absorbed. Jesus stood in our place. Jesus took the wrath of God. The righteous anger and wrath of God towards sin is now poured out on Jesus. Jesus took the wrath we deserve so we could have God's favor. Picture you and I standing in a courtroom guilty before God, deserving his holy wrath, but God comes down off the bench, comes to us and says, I'll personally pay the price for your sin against me. When you see the cross, this is what the cross is all about, that, that only God could save us from God, save us from his wrath. So, so when you see the cross, you see God's love perfectly being displayed, but you also see his wrath on display, that God is a just judge. He didn't just pass over the sin. He couldn't do that or he wouldn't be just. So he pours out the penalty of sin, which is death, and he pours it out on Jesus, God the Son. So God expresses his wrath towards sin, but at the same time, he, God endures the wrath against sin. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross as our propitiation is that he was absorbing, enduring the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And I've talked about this, this before, but remember in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying and crying out in such agony, he's sweating blood, and, and he wasn't afraid of the physical pain of the cross. I mean, think about through church history, how many people have died in the name of Christ and they did it with courage, right? Singing on their way to torture, praising God as they die. Right? Just this past week, I was reading about this one man. His name's Christopher Love. He's sentenced to death and while he's in prison, he gets this note from his wife and the note says this, today they will sever you from your physical head, but they cannot sever you from your spiritual head, Christ. And he went off to the gallows singing with his wife applauding. I mean, how could you do this? How, how would people be able to do this? Because, listen, Jesus faced something greater that meant they would never have to. Jesus said in the garden, take this cup from me. All through the Old Testament, a cup representing God's wrath. And Jesus says, take this wrath from me. But he ends in the garden praying and saying, not my will, your will be done. Jesus drank that wrath. One preacher said it like this. He says, it's, picture it like you and I standing in front of this, this, this huge dam, 10,000 miles high, 10,000 miles wide, filled to the brim with water. As you're standing in front of it, the dam explodes and breaks. Now all this water rushing towards you. And right before it's about to overtake you, the ground in front of your feet is opened up and that, that water, the ground swallows every drop of it. At the cross, Jesus took the full torrent of God's holy wrath towards you and me. He drank down every last drop of that cup of wrath. He turned it over and cried out, it is finished. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, the perfect life. And then as that perfect sacrifice, he, he laid down his life, endured the wrath we deserve, rose again on the third day to show, to prove, to show that the victory over sin was won so that now you and I could be set free. Isaiah 53, 6 says this about the cross, that, that on him our iniquity was laid. Our sin was placed on him. 
You, you can picture it this way. If, if here we are in our sin, and, and if my, in my hand, this is you and me, and, and this is sin over top of us, and we can't get to God because of that sin. And whether we're, we're way down here, super low, just living the, the worst life ever, or whether we're just a really great person, we're living really good, we're, we're, we think we're so close, the sin still blocks us. We're still an enemy of God, still under his wrath. But Isaiah says that this wrath, this iniquity, this sin was laid on Christ, taken away, so you and I can be called sons and daughters of this holy God. You see, God's wrath is not just this, this angry explosion. It's his opposition to the brokenness and, the, and the, the destructiveness of sin that's eating us out, those whom he loves and God loves us so much, loves you so much. He hates that sin that's harming us so much. He sent Jesus to set us free from that sin. So, so let's not minimize his wrath against us and our sin. Because if we minimize that, we miss the beauty of his grace. If you've never come before God to repent of your sin, I would urge you this morning to do this. This is not a game for us, for you. God is infinitely worthy of our worship. We are infinitely worthy of his wrath, but he's made a way for us to be saved from his wrath. And there's coming a time, listen, there's coming a time where you'll stand before God as judge. And it, it won't matter on that day when you stand before him. It won't matter how many people love you. It won't matter about the amount of success you have. It won't matter how many good deeds you did. The only thing that matters on that day is if you know Jesus. If you've trusted in his sacrifice on your behalf. The only question on that day that remains, listen, listen, right now, the only question is this. Will you bow before him today and receive his mercy? Or will you bow before him when it's too late and receive his wrath? If you never turn from your sin to trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I would invite you even right now, let this be the moment you say, Lord, I accept that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died in my place, Jesus. I want to follow you today. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you would say, man, I've never done that. I've always just trusted in my own goodness. But this morning, I see God's wrath towards me, and I see my need for Jesus, that, that you would cry out even this morning, even right now, God, save me from my sin. Maybe you're here, and you said, I've done that. I've done it. I pray this for our church, that as a church, that as, as, as brothers and sisters, we would never be casual with our sin, never be casual with God's wrath and with God's grace. I mean, do, do you really see the seriousness of your sin in light of the cross where Jesus paid the infinite price for our sins? The, those things we hide, the, the things that we excuse, and Jesus says, don't hide those. Stop excusing those. Stop suppressing my righteousness. Just bring them out. I'll take care of them. I cover them completely. If you're a brother or sister in Christ, listen, let's stop toying with sin in our life today. For so many of us, we can be so casual with our sin, sin that warrants the wrath of God. And I would urge you this morning, hate sin like God hates sin. It's killing you. It's destroying you. Sin's one aim is to damn you, to destroy you. So what do we do? We repent. We confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To 
save you not just from the penalty of God's wrath, but, but also to save you from the power of this sin in your life. And so what do we do? We, we turn from the sin and we trust him. For, for the first time, for some of you this morning, that that would happen. For those who are Christ followers, maybe again this morning, you come back again to this truth and you bring your heart again. Say, here's the sin I need to repent of. In fact, here's how I want to end off this morning. I want to spend some time in prayer. We're going to worship together. I want to spend some time in prayer and worship. And here's the thing. We can so get caught in the routine of how we do church, right? And we know, okay, Kai's wrapping up the sermon. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing a song. He'll come back up again, say a few words, tell us we're loved, and we go. And we're kind of already checking out. I would ask you this morning right now that you would take time, not just going through the motions, but take the time to give a few moments of, of quiet reflection for us where you would take the time where, where if you have sin that's been hidden, that's been suppressed, that you would confess it this morning. And God's been speaking to us through his word. And, and I, I can't say I know what's going on in, in, in the lives of everybody here, but, but you know what's going on. You know what's going on in your heart and your life right now. Let this be the moment where, where you trust Jesus. Because God's wrath is real. And his mercy is real. Salvation is real. So take a moment right now before we sing that you would confess, bring it to the Lord, and then we're going to stand together and you would worship. You would worship God for his goodness and his glory and his love poured out for you as he poured out his wrath on Jesus in your place. And let's stand and praise God for his grace. Amen. All right, take some time right now.